I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. As of May 18th, 2020, there are more than 1.4 million confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the United States of America. While 240,000 people have recovered from the virus there, 85,000 have died, the most of any country in the world. The American response to the pandemic has been criticized by just about everyone who's paying attention. The federal effort, led by the Trump administration, has been a disaster. State-level responses have varied, some faring better than others, ranging from competent to disastrous. Overall, the state of affairs is grim. And yet life in the time of COVID-19 has just begun. That makes the following question extraordinarily important. Can the United States manage the pandemic? On this episode of Open to Debate, I talk with Katie Simpson, CBC foreign correspondent based in Washington, D.C. Let's start by way of a little biography. You moved to Washington earlier this year, just before all of this started. What's that experience been like and how are you doing? I'm finding that the way people behave down here is very different from the way I'm seeing my friends back in Canada behave when it comes to the pandemic. For example, before you go into the grocery store down here, you have to be wearing a mask. And they've sort of reconfigured a number of grocery stores. So they set it up. So you sort of go in. It's one way aisles and you can't really go back if you miss something you know, you're probably going to have to wait until the next time you go to the grocery store. They're really trying to enforce physical distancing down here. And I was just talking with my family members who live in southwestern Ontario, and they're like, yeah, people aren't necessarily wearing masks when they go to the grocery store there. So I'm going to send a care package of masks home. There's a department store down here that is open. It's declared essential. I'm going to go out and buy a bunch of masks and send them back home because it's sort of been branded that it's socially unacceptable to not wear a mask down here. I know that in the different countries, there have been sort of different thoughts on the use of the mask and whether it's useful in preventing the spread or protecting yourself. But down here in Washington itself, for the most part, Anywhere you go, you see more people wearing masks than not wearing masks. And I would argue that people are generally keeping their distance from one another. When I walk to the office, you know, you see someone coming down the street, you make eye contact with them and I'm like, okay, who's going to cross the street? Am I going to cross the street? (laughs) Am I going to walk into the street and walk around a car? Some of my colleagues would argue they haven't seen it necessarily as people being that proactive. But in my experience, I've seen people really trying to follow the guidelines keep six feet apart. And I am seeing lots of masks here in Washington, D.C. You know, the hardest thing for me has not been making politician masks jokes. Well, here's the thing. (laughs) Masks are a deeply political thing down here. When the CDC came out with recommendations saying that you should wear a mask, Donald Trump, the president, was asked, you know, whether he was going to wear a mask. And he said, I don't think I would. And he cited that he has to meet with other world leaders, meet with dignitaries. And it's something he doesn't think he was going to do. Uh, Donald Trump held an event last week and two key members of his coronavirus task force, Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Burks, they came out wearing masks while Donald Trump did not. Alex Azar, who's the Secretary of Health and Human Services, he didn't. And the Secretary of Defense, he didn't wear a mask. And so a lot of Trump supporters that we're seeing at these anti-lockdown protests, they're not wearing masks. And so there are concerns about what kind of level of safety is happening at these rallies when people are not wearing masks and they're not keeping their distance. So it's become a deeply, deeply political issue down here. And Vice President Pence was at a hospital without a mask, right? 
He was at a hospital. He was at a, a clinic without a mask. And he also toured a, another public place without a mask. Donald Trump has gone to a couple of medical supply uh, factories and he's not worn masks on those tours where everyone else has worn masks. One place in particular that really stands out is he went on a trip to Arizona and it was a factory that was producing masks that uh, the N95s and the reporters who were there, the pool team took a photo of this big TV that had like the rules for going into the facility. And one of the rules was you must be wearing a mask at all times. And Donald Trump was not wearing a mask. And you saw photos of the people who were sitting to watch the president speak. I believe many of them were employees and they're all wearing masks, but the president is the one person who's not wearing a mask. And so it's deeply divisive and deeply, deeply, deeply political here. Well, speaking of that, let's go to the start of all this with a rundown of what the response to the coronavirus pandemic has entailed federally in the United States. Uh, Can you talk to me a little bit about the central measures that have been taken and, and perhaps some that have not been taken? So the first big move that was announced by the White House goes back to January 31st. And Donald Trump often says his you know, biggest, boldest move to stop the coronavirus from coming to the United States and really cites it as a big win. On January 31st, he announced that there'd be travel restrictions. He calls it a travel ban. Restrictions is probably the more accurate way to describe it, but to stop people from coming into the United States from China. Those were announced on January 31st, and they were going to come into effect in the next couple of days. At the time, he did receive some criticism for it. The general criticism was that, you know, stopping flights isn't going to stop the virus. There was criticism about whether this was something that could trigger backlash against the Asian American community, whether it could be seen as something that's racist. So there was some backlash against Donald Trump at that time which he is now sort of cited as like a big, bold step that he took to sort of prevent the spread as best as possible. After that big announcement back at the end of January, there's about a six-week gap where there are a lot of questions about what was going on behind the scenes. We now know from Dr. Rick Bright, who was overseeing vaccine development in the U.S., he testified before Congress last week about losing his job. He was moved out of his position after he says he gave pushback against the Trump administration administration's pushing of an anti-malaria drug as a treatment for COVID-19, even though there wasn't science to back it up. He was testifying about how during that period of time in January and February, he was trying to warn everyone, all of his superiors, anyone who would listen about just how serious the potential threat of this virus was, and also trying to get attention paid to the lack of PPE, the lack of medical supplies, especially masks. And he says his concerns were met with indifference. No one seemed to be organized or have any sort of plan on what they were going to do to get more medical supplies that were going to be very, very badly needed. And so there's a lot of confusion behind the scenes, at least according to Dr. Bright, who is inside watching all of this unfold. We also know that the Centers for Disease Control was trying to develop a test kit during this period of time, but there were technical problems and there was red tape. And even a member of the Trump administration yesterday blamed the CDC, saying it let the country down by not getting its own testing out in a timely fashion. So that's happening behind the scenes. The CDC is trying to get some sort of testing uh, kits out to the public, out to doctors out to public labs, and that's very troublesome. At the same time, Donald Trump in this period is downplaying the seriousness of the virus. He says it could be gone by April. 
He plays up some of the politics in this, trying to accuse the Democrats of making this a political issue, describing it, comparing it to what went on with the Russia investigation, the Ukraine investigation, making links there. He's described himself as playing the role of cheerleader for the country. But again, his critics are arguing he was not leveling with the American people, not telling them the truth about what the scientists were seeing behind the scenes and just the severity of the challenges that lie ahead. Mid-March, that's the end about that six-week period. And that's when things are really starting to change in the United States. Donald Trump is under pressure to do more. And so in mid-March, he announces from the Oval Office travel restrictions from Europe. Now, when he makes the announcement, it's a very widespread ban and that there are even conversations to ban goods coming in, being shipped over from Europe, cargo. That turned out not to be the case when all the details were released. There are a lot of exceptions to the travel ban from Europe. Uh, the UK is not included or Britain's not included in that. It was a later expanded, but it wasn't necessarily a ban in the same way that he'd been talking about it. But that is a big announcement. At the same time as Trump is making that step, some states are starting to take action on their own, like in Washington state, in California. Washington state is where they had the first diagnosed case in the United States. And because of that, you're starting to see regional lockdowns, regional stay-at-home orders before they start picking up to about the statewide level. This is also when the country starts to realize, hey, guess what? We don't have enough ventilators. If we're going to see the numbers we are expecting to see, we don't have enough masks. We don't have enough personal protective supplies to make sure that our frontline workers are going to be safe. So at the same time, the Trump administration decides to enact a wartime law. It's called the Defense Production Act. And while Trump invokes it, it allows him to compel certain companies to change their operations and produce anything that might be considered an essential good to help with whatever the national emergency is. So in some cases, it's getting car manufacturers to produce N95 masks or produce ventilators, things like that. While he enacts the law, he doesn't start using it for a few more weeks, but it's one tool that the White House sort of gets ready to go just in case it's going to need it. Canadians will very much remember this. When Donald Trump did invoke the Defense Production Act, there were some restrictions that some manufacturers of emergency supplies were faced with. The Trump administration tried to stop 3M from sending respirators, those N95 masks, up to Canada mm -hmm. as a way to keep more of those masks in the United States. That, again, is something that Canadians will know, but it certainly presented a number of challenges and was the site of criticism from at least Canada as well as Mexico on this process. So, Right now, we're seeing that Donald Trump has announced the travel ban from Europe, the travel restrictions on Europe. Donald Trump has invoked the Defense Production Act. It's something that he can use to help ramp up the production of supplies. And then we start to see the conversation around physical distancing. That doesn't happen until mid to late March. And Donald Trump announces that he's going to recommend for the entire country that people try and keep their distance, stay six feet apart. Non-essential businesses are not necessarily allowed to be open. It's going to depend on the state. But these are guidelines from the White House for two weeks that people need to follow these physical distancing rules. And so that was really a big turning point in the United States where most the economy was really shut down. And there had been a lot of criticism around that because on one side, some of Donald Trump's critics argued it was way too late. The discussions around physical distancing, social distancing really should have been happening back in February. However, they didn't. 
on the other side of that argument, small business owners, employees who lost their jobs were arguing they did not know how they were going to make ends meet because if they were already living paycheck to paycheck, how on earth are they expected to survive when they no longer have an income? So it really creates some deep concerns. There's already a lot of polarization in the United States, and this really adds into that. But the public health experts are recommending that this is what needs to be done. And the White House announces that for two weeks, it was later extended for at least two weeks, that uh, physical distancing rules re- need to be enforced. Then we start to see lawmakers kick into action. Congress starts passing legislation to get emergency relief to Americans. There are these $1,200 one-time stimulus checks to help that start going out the door in mid-April. There's the Paycheck Protection Program, which is something that is getting a lot of praise uh, in the United States, and they're concerned uh, that it might even need to be further expanded. Basically, it allows small businesses to apply for a forgivable loan so that they don't have to lay off their employees. And the small businesses that have qualified for those loans, the ones that I've interviewed, the small business owners, they are grateful and say it is keeping them alive in this difficult time. And that's something that they're relying on to just, you know, make sure that they don't have to let go of their employees. Now, this is all going on as the U.S. is obviously becoming the epicenter of the outbreak. New York City has more cases than, aside from the United States, than any other country in the world. That's happening in late March, April, as that situation is getting worse. And so it's clear that the United States has some very significant problems and some significant challenges on the public health front. At the same time, the economy is having massive challenges. There have been 36 million Americans who have applied for unemployment benefits since the shutdown began in the United States. And as a result of that economic hardship and just how brutal the impact that has had on everyday lives of Americans, we are now seeing states starting to slowly reopen across the country. The majority of states have lifted stay-at-home orders at this point or at least uh, lifted some aspects of them. Physical distancing rules are still encouraged, but the economic cost of shutting down the economy for weeks on end has really gotten to a point where states and governors are making decisions to reopen. The White House has put out guidelines on what states should be doing before making the decisions to allow certain businesses and certain sectors to reopen. Largely, those guidelines are not necessarily being followed in some states. However, this gradual reopening is happening down here. I know that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I certainly uh, understand that a lot because there's been a lot going on. And, and I think it isn't as if the Trump administration's shortcomings have been absolute. I mean, it isn't as if nothing has been done. Things have been done. But even former President Obama has now come out and started to criticize the administration's response, in, including, and this is a quote, calling it a chaotic disaster as part of a conference call. And we all sort of know the caricature moments of Trump saying, you know, one day it's going to be gone, like a miracle, it will disappear. You know, social distancing will be lifted by Easter and so on. But it strikes me that a lot of the shortcomings of the response, other than ineptitude and and pettiness and so on, has been a lack of preparedness. The, The actual genesis of this poor response goes back several years. And I'm thinking, for instance, about the disbanding of the National Security Council's Global Health, Security and Biodefense team in 2018, as well as the thing that Dr. Bright from the HHS was saying, that basically the country wasn't prepared for this. And now it's happening and there's a lot of scrambling. I'm wondering what you're seeing in terms of the White House coordination strategy. I mean, who's running the show in there? 
But we see Jared Kushner come out one day, and all of a sudden, Jared Kushner seems to be in charge of the response. <laughs> and some days, Dr. Fauci is there, and some days, he's not. And I get the sense that a huge part of this problem is that the internal coordination and leadership is lacking, and therefore, the external coordination and leadership is also lacking. What does it look like inside the White House? Well, a big thing that Dr. Bright pointed out during his testimony last week is that from his perspective, he argues that there is not a plan and that there isn't the leadership in place to really make sure that America is prepared for what is still to come. And he's warning of a resurgence of coronavirus in the fall when seasonal influenza and coronavirus are going to be existing together at the same time. And the challenges that is going to present for the U.S. healthcare system and whether it can handle a surge in influenza and coronavirus patients at the same time. That is his big concern. He argues there is not the leadership in place there. Democrats have made similar arguments about the lack of leadership from the White House. The way the White House has defended itself is Donald Trump, originally when this first started, it was Alex Azar, who's the Secretary of Health and Human Services. He was leading the effort behind the scenes to deal with the pandemic. And we've seen reporting from major American publications, I believe both the Washington Post and the New York Times, have talked about how Alex Azar in the early days in January was trying to raise concern within the White House about what was going on. And that in one case in particular in January, Donald Trump is reported to have dismissed the concerns saying that Alex Azar was being alarmist. Others in the Trump administration seem to share the concern that Azar had Peter Navarro writing a memo to others in the White House about just how serious the consequences could be of a pandemic if that is in fact what is going to happen in the United States. Now, with all of that happening in the background, it's Alex Azar at Health and Human Services who is leading the charge here. And then when there is some criticism about what has sort of been going on and the lack of testing and, and the concerns about how quickly things are spreading in the U.S., you see a shift from the White House. Mike Pence, the vice president, is now appointed the head of the coronavirus task force. He's going to be leading things on a day-to-day -day basis, marshalling resources and making sure that the response is coordinated out of the White House. And then you see the additions of people like Jared Kushner to the team, who does not have any experience in military operations, does not have any experience in marshalling resources, yet he's a key player in the marshalling of resources. And so there's some criticism about how people who don't necessarily have the experience to get things done are in positions where they're making decisions about how to get things done in a public health emergency. Now, Trump did bring in military generals to help with that response as well. So there are people who do have some experience guiding the way in there, but at the same time, you have figures like Jared Kushner, who doesn't have any experience in there as part of the response as well. Now, when it comes to messaging, Donald Trump has really put himself front and center at all of these. When the reporting out of the major publications down here is that when Donald Trump realized how much attention, everything, and how this is the only thing that everyone is focusing on, Donald Trump put himself front and center in these daily briefings to really be the person getting the message out about what is going on with the coronavirus. He isn't necessarily the one who's making the key decisions on things. We know that when it comes to the stay-at-home orders, that's up to the governors, and that's decisions being made at the state level based on what the governors are seeing in that time. We also know that at this same time, 
while these briefings are going on and there's criticism about how the Trump administration is handling things, there's also concern about a lack of an organization when it comes to acquiring emergency supplies. So remember when there was so much concern about ventilators, that New York was afraid that they were not going to have enough ventilators to take care of patients. They were saying that they were going to run out of ventilators within a matter of days and that there needs to be more emergency medical supplies sent to these hotspot areas. We would hear stories from governors, different governors, about how they're trying to get a hold of these badly, badly, badly needed supplies. And they would end up in bidding wards against one another. And then FEMA, the emergency agency that is supposed to be overseeing all of this, is also involved in these bidding wards. So you're seeing bidding wars for emergency supplies that is pitting state against state. And so there's a lot of criticism from some governors about how the federal government needs to step up. It needs to be doing the buying in bulk and then getting the supplies to the states that need it most so that these states aren't competing one against another. So there certainly has been a lot of criticism that is directly aimed at the White House in terms of a lack of organization. That's one allegations critics will make of the Trump administration's response that there hasn't been a lot of coordination, that the organization hasn't been there, so that, you know, states are in an awkward position trying to get the emergency supplies bidding against another part of the country. And then, again, with the messaging, there's concern that Donald Trump has not necessarily presented the full understanding of the concern that experts in the White House had about this. In those early days, Donald Trump was downplaying the seriousness of the virus, saying it could go away by April. He was pushing a treatment hydroxychloroquine, which is an anti-malaria drug, which has been used for years. However, based on some initial studies in France, he was pushing this as a possible miracle breakthrough. But at the same time, there wasn't the science to back it up. So that was another concern about the messaging coming from the White House was not clear at a time of public crisis for the American people. And that's something that has been a major point of criticism. So the key sort of criticisms the Trump administration has faced about its overall handling to this is one, a lack of organization, two, a lack of clear information about the seriousness, about the response to the American people. And there are other concerns as well. But that's when you take a step back and look at what some of the key concerns are, those are the top two for sure. Thinking back on this, we live day to day in such a fast news cycle and so much happens in a given day. We've already forgotten that in response to the, this drug that Trump was touting, he said, what have you got to lose? Right. And now people are dying from it. Well, there there was a study. There was a study at a veterans hospital. So Donald Trump had been pushing this drug as a possible breakthrough. And as you mentioned, he was saying, you know, what do you got to lose? What do you got to lose? And we now know from Dr. Rick Bright, there was a real push from the Trump administration to try and make hydroxychloroquine available. As Rick Bright described it, flood New York and New Jersey with this drug as a possible treatment, even though there wasn't the proper rigorous study of the drug to see if it was going to have any sort of either benefit or any sort of consequences that could come with it. And it wasn't until there was a study done by a veterans hospital down here that found the patients that took hydroxychloroquine had an increased risk in death. So there was a 
deep concern about that. And I know that through reporting and what we've seen when reporters go into these anti-lockdown protests, there's one anecdote in particular that really stands out in my mind. There was a reporter in Long Island last week who went to an anti-lockdown rally and he was being trolled by people. They're trolled is probably a very generous, polite word, <laughs> but people were yelling at him and telling him to go away and calling him fake news. And there was one gentleman in particular who was sort of chasing him. He was pursuing him. And the reporter kept saying, sir, please keep six feet away. Sir, please keep six feet away. And the man said, I'm safe. I've got hydroxychloroquine. So the message from the White House about certain things, those messages resonate with the American people. And we now know from at least that one study, the early studies are showing, and there are still studies on hydroxychloroquine to see if this is something that perhaps in some capacity might do something. But the early results suggest that is not the case, even if further research is still being done. But what comes out of the White House matters what the president says matters because when everyday people are citing they feel safe because they have something that isn't proven to work, that is something that public health advocates would argue is really dangerous. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to take us too far off track, but we often complain about politics being careful and choreographed and coming off as phony. And my response to that is often there's a reason these things are stage managed so carefully. And there's a reason that politicians are extraordinarily careful with what they say. This is exactly why. That what you say matters because it has an effect on the world. People are going to listen to you. And if you're not careful, you're going to kill people. But I want to take us back to the state level question. You had mentioned states bidding against each other and a lack of coordination from the federal government. There's also a major concern that the Trump administration might be unfit to do some of that state management. And I think of the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo, saying Donald Trump is trying to punish us because we're too blue in tying up some measures in New York. Or, for instance, withholding aid for a period of time from Michigan and saying, I want governors to be appreciative. This is what Trump says about aid to the governors. And then sort of demeaning the governor of Michigan, who happens to be a Democrat and happens to be a woman. So I wonder to what extent states are looking at the federal government and saying, we're not even convinced we can work with them because of Trump's political inclinations or even just a lack of capacity at the federal government. To what extent is there you know, tensions along partisan lines between the state and federal governments? The partisan tensions are more bark than bite out of the White House. And so Donald Trump, who has been known to lash out at his perceived political opponents, particularly Democrats, has never held back of his criticisms. He's never held back in terms of that. And even in a pandemic, that's not something Donald Trump has done. However, when Donald Trump was most critical of some of the governors that had raised concerns about the way that the White House was managing this task force, you would see Mike Pence, the vice president, come up to the microphone in the White House, and he would talk about how he spoke with all governors and how they're working with all governors to make sure that states are getting the help that they needed and getting the resources that they needed. And so while there's a lot of bark around the politics, and Donald Trump certainly is not one to withhold his criticism of someone he perceives to be his political enemy or political opponent. 
in the background the way things were working, even though he had a lot of criticism for Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, of J.B. Pritzker, the governor of Illinois, or even Andrew Cuomo. They seem to have sorted out some of their political beefs. Mm. Um, things were still happening, and we did have moments where Andrew Cuomo would be appreciative, as the president likes. There was a lot of attention around whether the resources were going to be marshaled or that certain states need certain things and Donald Trump wanted to be better appreciated publicly. There was a lot of criticism around that, but in terms of the bark versus the bite, the bark was far louder than any sort of thing actually following through to hurting people who live in particular states. That's actually encouraging to hear. And I think that's a point that is often missed when we're talking about these things. Um, It's fascinating to, and it's also worth remembering, I mean, this calls to mind the fact that the U.S. government is big. It has competing interests. It has competing capabilities. It isn't just driven by the president or even just the administration. So you've mentioned Vice President Pence a handful of times on this episode, as have I. Whatever people think of Mike Pence, and there's lots to think about him, he has capacity to manage this in a way that others don't. So there are layers to this. But speaking of layers, I want to move a little bit north to the border because Canada's management of the U.S. response has been a challenge for our federal government here. Uh, You mentioned the challenge with 3M and getting PPE supplies across the border. That, in fact, to some extent, I think relied on the goodwill and probably good business sense of 3M as much as anybody. There was also some musing as Trump is wont to do around sending troops to the border at one point. And of course, the border has been closed. And there's a negotiation, I'm sure, ongoing about when it will reopen. What do you think the Canadian strategy or approach has been when managing the relationship with the United States in light of COVID? One thing I want to flag, the border troop thing, that's not something that started in the White House. That's something that sort of started, I believe, at the Department of Defense. And so it wasn't necessarily something that Trump himself had sort of been pushing, but it did make its way up the chain in terms of at least questions to the president. And that sort of turned out to be a lot of commotion for something that wasn't necessarily going to be a real serious thing that Canada was going to be dealing with. In terms of Canada... Justin Trudeau has always had a challenging time when it comes to dealing with the Canada-U.S. relationship, and that started right from the get-go when Donald Trump had announced that if he were going to be president, one of the things he wanted to do was rip up NAFTA. Mm -hmm. And so the Trudeau government certainly got an up-close view of what it was like to deal with the Trump administration during the years that those negotiations took place, ultimately resulting in a renegotiated NAFTA that was along terms that the Trump administration saw as more favorable to the United States. Canada just needed to make sure that it could still maintain its trading relationship with the United States. Yes, there are certainly some bigger challenges Canada now faces as a result of the new NAFTA. Americans have more access to the Canadian dairy market, things like that. But the goal for the Trudeau administration was to make sure that, by and large, the U.S. remains an open market for Canada and that they were able to achieve that goal. It's a political debate in Canada. Most everyone agrees the new NAFTA, they got it's there. That's generally the consensus from the top two Canadian political parties, the Liberals and the Conservatives. But there are concerns about how the negotiations went down and whether enough was secured for Canada. So that's a political debate that happens inside of Canada. But certainly the Trudeau government knew that it could face some challenges 
with President Donald Trump and that at times the president can be unpredictable. And so when the mask issue popped up and you saw Doug Ford, the premier of Ontario, who is a progressive conservative, who is very much supportive of Trump. He was down here before the pandemic began and he was speaking at a roundtable event and he promoted Donald Trump. He mm -hmm. wished him luck in the election and was backing him. So when Doug Ford came out and was really laying into the criticism on Donald Trump over the issue of masks and whether masks that were destined for Canada were being held up at the border, you saw a coordinated response from politicians at different levels in Canada to come together and try to ensure something is secured for Canada. So that's exactly what happened in NAFTA as well. You saw politicians of different stripes at different levels all speaking with one voice in favor of Canada and the Canadian economy. That's what happened this time when you saw that challenge with supplies being sent to Canada. The Trudeau government reached out to the government of Doug Ford and there was a coordinated speaking with one voice push to try and get through that challenge. So that's something that is going to be an issue. The next big challenge that the Canada-US relationship is really going to have to sort of navigate, it's going to come down to when is it time to lift the border restrictions that are in place right now. From the sources I've been speaking with, it's expected that these restrictions are going to continue for the foreseeable future at least. But again, the conversation that we're hearing from some premiers, particularly in provinces where there is a lot of travel back and forth, Ontario and British Columbia, there is pushback at the premier level as to, hey, you know what, we're not comfortable with this. We don't necessarily want to see this reopen just yet because the problems in the United States are different than the problems in Canada. And we don't want to see people coming in to Canada that make our people sick or may spread the infection there. So that's going to be the next challenge in when is it time to start lifting some of those restrictions and reallowing non-essential travel? And what does that look like? And how do you make that happen safely? I've been watching the British Columbia response closely. I lived there for quite a long time. I've just followed BC politics. And John Horgan, the premier, and, and the BC health minister, Adrian Dix, have been pretty vocal about keeping the border safe and about, you know, in fact, appealing directly to residents of Washington state not to come back when the border was open. They just sort of stay home, stay home, especially given that, that Washington state has had particularly difficult challenges with the virus as well. As I was listening to you talk, I was thinking that Canada's management problem will be both with the Americans, presumably with the Federation itself. The Trudeau government will have to manage its own response vis-a-vis -vis the provinces as much as it will vis-a-vis -vis American states, right? And of course, the Trudeau government has had its own problems with, with the provinces well before any of this arrived. So I wonder to what extent there's going to be some sort of stacking of grievances as we try to figure it out. But that's Canada all the time, I suppose, trying to manage grievances and, and competing interests between provinces, right? It's certainly when you add a pandemic into what governments are dealing with, whatever stripe the government is, it makes a challenging situation even far more difficult and far more complicated. Well, I'll save my editorializing for print, but I will go to this. I'll, I'll close out on, on, on this question because I think this is in some ways as big as and as terrible as the COVID challenge has been. As we look forward to the next decade and two decades and three decades, there's something bigger at play here, which is the health and the viability long term of American political and, and economic institutions. Now, they were in bad shape well before the pandemic arrived. I mean, there's lots of data and studies and analysis that suggest that a lot of the problems we're seeing in the Republic right now are the result of trends of decisions of phenomena that go back decades. For instance, underfunding, disaster preparedness, partisan toxicity, and so on. Watching this crisis unfold, and you're there in real time 
in some sense at the center of it. Watching the institutional response and watching the institutional challenges, where do you think this leaves the United States of America from the perspective of their institutions going forward? Presumably it leaves it weaker, but is there a bounce back coming? What does that look like? I think it's going to depend on what happens with the fall election. Donald Mm -hmm. Trump has made it no secret that he is putting the interests of Americans first. And he sees that as focusing on domestic issues and pulling the Americans back from the world stage. And we've seen that with his criticism of longstanding international institutions, whether it be his criticism of NATO, whether it is his reluctance to pulling the Americans out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, his cutting of funding to the World Health Organization, putting that on pause while he demands that there is an investigation into what it knew when about how serious the coronavirus was. So Donald Trump has really taken a step back in terms of the role the Americans are playing on the world stage. And that can be expected to continue if Donald Trump is reelected this fall. And I know that the polls are showing that perhaps Joe Biden has an edge in some swing states, which is where this election is going to be won or lost. It is months from the election, and I would never make a prediction about what's going to happen. But it will probably be very close. Donald Trump does have a strong support of base in the United States. And when you travel to different parts of the country, you see that base, you meet those people who were tired of feeling the government did not speak for them, tired of feeling left out, tired of the hollowing out of the middle class. And they saw Donald Trump as someone who didn't talk like the rest of the politicians, didn't say the things that other politicians said, and they saw a champion in someone who would stand up for them. Have the lives of people in the middle class necessarily changed in the way they want it to change? You know, it depends on the region. It depends on the place. It it all depends. And while Donald Trump has made a lot of promises, he has not necessarily lived up to some of the promises he's made, but other ones, some people think he's done a great job. So don't think that this is going one way or the other in November. That's my long way to get to the point of who knows what's going to happen in November. But if Donald Trump continues and is reelected for a second term as president, you can expect that retreat to continue from the world stage, that position as world leader. And then you see, you know, major institutions like uh, there's been an understaffing at the State Department. There's been understaffing at other government agencies as a way to save money. And a way to more focus, shift focus, Donald Trump has argued, in more domestic issues, things that need to be happening at home. So expect that to continue. If Joe Biden, who is the presumptive Democratic nominee, is the one who wins the next election, you might see a dramatic sort of reversal in all of that and a recommitment as America, as a global leader to all of these international institutions that have really helped build the liberal world order, the global world order that exists right now since the Second World War. I think it's too soon to sort of have an assessment of the impact this is going to have on institutions that have already been experiencing some challenges in terms of respect and participation and effectiveness. But I think that that question is going to be better answered in November. I'll close on this for real because you mentioned the election and certainly part of the Trump administration's plan has been to demonize China, for instance. You've already discussed how it's been to talk of a sort of America first or isolationist style policy. You mentioned the WHO. There's also UNESCO and UN dues and so on, which is an old canard in the U.S. But anyway, what about the election itself? What's the talk been about going through an electoral process, going through an election during COVID? 
mail-in ballots, for instance, have been a flashpoint with many folks saying, if we're going to do an election, we have to have mail-in ballots because it's unsafe to have people go to the polls. And President Trump and other Republicans suggesting erroneously that there's a serious potential for voter fraud. That seems to be actually a very serious point of contention, given that it does pave the way for a narrative of an election that's illegitimate. And we don't have to go there ourselves. Everyone can use their imagination to imagine where that might go. But I'm wondering what sort of discussion and what sort of climate you're seeing emerge from the idea that we might have to have an election here in the United States during the pandemic. If there's one thing that everyone agrees upon is that the election must happen. That seems to be a point of consensus in a place that is very, very (laughs) divided politically. It's just what's it going to look like and what's going to be the state of the pandemic in November? Is that the point where we have both seasonal flu and coronavirus mixing and challenging healthcare systems across the United States? You've got to take a look at what the state of public health is going to be at that point in time. And then, yes, some people have advocated that mail-in ballots, that's going to be the way that needs to go. And in Wisconsin, when they held their primary Oh, I want to say last month, I think it was. We covered it from Washington. It was very interesting because the way that they adapted is a peek into the future. They set up drive-through voting sites where people, it looked like a drive-through testing site, actually. People were in their full head-to-toe hazmat gear. They had face shields on, and they were going to cars to take votes. Other people, we saw people lining up, trying to keep their six feet. It wasn't always the case in every situation, but all of the frontline polling station workers were, well, for the most part, from what we saw, we didn't see everything. But from what you saw, it was people wearing the disposable suits. They were wearing the face shields. They were wearing masks as people came in to cast their ballots. And then the question is whether there are going to be challenges to mail-in voting. Donald Trump is very clearly stated that he does not support that. He has, uh, without evidence, made the argument that it is rife for voter fraud. There's no evidence to back that claim. And it's going to be interesting to watch both sides try to, I don't know if you've reached compromise, you've reached consensus, or how you're going to go about doing this, but it's certainly going to be a discussion that needs to happen in the United States. How do you safely carry out an election when physically going to polling stations is something that could put your health in jeopardy. So they've got a few months to figure things out. But the bigger question is, if mail-in voting is allowed and the Republicans or the Trump administration sees that as something that could be detrimental to their re-election efforts, is Donald Trump going to try and undermine whatever results happen by claiming it was rigged or it was a fraud. The big question before the 2016 election, you might remember, was, is Donald Trump, when everyone thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, everyone thought, is Donald Trump going to sow even more seeds of division by declaring he doesn't accept the election results by saying Mm -hmm. that it was rigged? And there seems to be a setting of the scene again, if that's going to be a concern, the way that Donald Trump talks about it or certainly tweets about it and discusses his concerns around mail-in voting. Well, sadly, that brings us to the end, although it does leave a cliffhanger for the next episode that we might call Can America Survive the Century? But that's my problem, not yours. I <laughs> This is extraordinary and succinct. I don't know of many people who could basically summarize the entire American coronavirus pandemic and response in about 45 minutes. But you did. And so that was uh, a lot of talking on my part, a lot of talking. Sometimes I just like listening when people are adding value to the conversation. It's nice just to listen. My thanks to you for coming and telling us all about the last, what is it, 900 months 
Yes, yes, oh, that's God. how long it's been. That is how long it's been. I, oh, something man. like that, 900, 1,000. You know, after 700, it all starts to blur together. But my thanks to you, uh, Katie Simpson, for coming on and teaching us all so much and for the work that you do, that you did in Canada and that you continue to do in the United States, keeping us all informed. Thank you very much. Thanks so much. And to everyone listening, hopefully at home, to the extent that it's possible, thanks as always for listening and continue to stay safe, continue to follow public health officials and what they recommend and um, continue to the extent that it's possible to press on. And we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. 